this is Swordplay. Alex, your boy John Piper this week said, The thing that distinguishes Christians from non-Christians is delighting in the glory of God. How have you delighted yourself in the Lord today, Alex? Well, Nick, unfortunately, I have been too distracted because of my dying tulip. Every time I put it in the light, it seems to wither. And I'm not talking about flowers. Oh, there it is. All right. And by the way, um, surprisingly, or maybe not, I don't know, but Piper did say that the world can use its willpower to make decisions for Jesus, which I thought that went against total depravity. You can't, your your will is bound to, but uh, I could be wrong I, about that. There's so much double speak in there, I can't even decipher what that means. So... Moving on. <laughs> this is Swordplay, and we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota, and welcome to Swordplay. On Nick, this what... episode of Swordplay, 2 Peter chapter 2. Excellent. Well, Nick, what do you think about 2 Peter chapter 2? Uh, you know, we do a tough text every day or every episode, and um, this whole chapter is like one giant tough text. There's so much going on, and when you actually start digging into some of this stuff, um, it's hard to get a consensus on exactly what's going on. But um, yeah, I, this this should be fun. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely don't think that we're going to find a consensus. You and I may not be at a consensus, but let's see what a couple of heretics can come up with. Now, before we get started, we do want to remind the audience, if you've not yet read 2 Peter chapter 2, pause the playback here and go pick up your Bible, read through the chapter, read it again, uh, read the whole book of 2 Peter to get the whole thing in your mind. And then come back, hit play, and, and listen to our discussion. <clears throat> That's good advice, Nick. It seems like every verse that I went through, I came up with 10 questions. So we'll try to pare it down and see how many we can get through today. Now, what do you think about verse 1? It says, false prophets also arose among the people. Now, this he's just jumping off of what he finished in chapter 1, right? So he's continuing his, his thought that... Know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Then he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So who are these false prophets of the past that you think Peter is referring to, Nick? Gracious, uh, pick them. You know, it's just, um, they're uh, throughout sacred history, there have been a number of um, false prophets who have arisen among the people that sought to draw the people away. I think whichever whichever ones that Peter, and maybe Peter just has all of them in mind uh, throughout sacred history, and he's doing like a contrast here between, as you said, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. You've got the true prophets of God who were carried along by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God, and you've got false prophets, on the other hand, who don't speak from God, who aren't carried along by the Holy Spirit. They are guys who work secretly, they introduce destructive heresies, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are sensual, they are greedy, they are um, exploitative of people, 
and um, the list goes on and on as he as he discusses the character of the false prophets, the false teachers among them. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. Now, what do you think of this, Nick? Uh, I propose that we widen the umbrella of what a false prophet is. I've always thought, okay, it's just somebody who teaches something that's false, or somebody who, who doesn't really have the Holy Spirit. Now, what if Balaam is considered a false prophet? Balaam was a prophet of God. He's going to be mentioned in chapter 2. You go back and read his story. God's words came out of his mouth. In fact, he wanted to bring curses upon Israel, but God wouldn't let him. Blessings came out instead. So this guy is a prophet, but he's not a good guy. And the story uh, makes it clear when it goes back and looks at it hindsight. You get the information later that says, Balaam was responsible for the sin of Israel at Beth Peor. Now, without unfolding that entire story, if Balaam is a false prophet and yet God's words came out of his mouth, uh, how do you think that impacts our view of what a false prophet is, Nick? And maybe that, that speaks to um, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be blasphemed. Um, even verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Um, and just the, the seductive nature of these people. Um, someone has said that the, the danger of the lie is that it's almost the truth. And, and so that's how they <clears throat> persuade people to follow after them is, is it, it's almost the truth. Um, and, and, uh, specifically in Balaam's case, all right, it was the truth, but his character is what puts him in league with these false prophets, false teachers that Peter has in mind who are dragging the church into sensuality and all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't be caught up in. He was greedy. That was That's, that's the sin of Balaam, um, or one of them at least. Well, we also see in other uh, passages like in Jude and in Revelation where Balaam is said to have continually counseled Balak, uh, king of Moab, to put stumbling blocks before Israel. What were those stumbling blocks? Well, basically he had Moabite women, probably prostitutes, probably shrine temple prostitutes, infiltrate Israel's camp, sleep with all the men, persuade the men to go worship other gods with them. And so this brings in the side of the uh, persuasion using sexual sin, sensuality, in order to uh, get people to stray from their loyalty to God and to Jesus Christ. I mean, look at how many times just in chapter 2 you get this idea of some sort of sexual sin. you got sensuality being used in verse 2, verse 7, verse 18. You have uh, indulging in the flesh being mentioned in 2.10. You have adultery mentioned in 2.14, uh, along with enticing. Uh, mentions Balaam and the Senate Peor in 2.15, which is the sexual sin that led them into idolatry. And then you have this fleshly desires mentioned in 2.18. Uh, throw in the sin of the angels, which we'll talk about in just a minute. You have a lot of mentioning about greed, but mostly sexual sin in chapter 2. And that is the tool in which these false teachers are using to pull away people from Christ Jesus. Now that's that's pretty interesting to me.
And I, I sent you an article. We could link it on our website um, just yesterday as we maybe carry some stuff across the bridge here today. The There are um, a group of Catholic priests that are going to be gathering uh, in order to study whether or not um, viewing pornography is something that the devil makes us do. And, you know, one of the things that jumped to my mind was James 1, 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, uh, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, sin when it's full grown brings forth death. That sin and that desire originates within us. We can't, we can't use the, the Flip Wilson theology of the devil made me do it. And and so we live in a hypersexualized culture. There's um, uh, so much um, sexual material that is so readily available just at the click of a mouse. And um, I don't know that uh, there's anyone out there necessarily saying that. Um, yeah, you can you can view pornography to the glory of God or something like that. I suppose there's that's possible because uh, there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. But you know what yeah, I've heard? That, that, that's the temptation is still there today with all the the sensuality and the sexuality and all this stuff. It, it still is a temptation today. Yeah, you know, I think where some of the uh, deception might come is by labeling stuff like as art, as being artistic, like, oh, God created the human body, it's so beautiful, don't you want to admire God's creation? And so you start to uh, relabel stuff, and you can start pulling people into realms of um, temptation. And it's sort of a twofold thing, Nick. You don't have, like James said, you don't have God the, is not the one dangling the sin in front of you saying, uh, don't do it, don't do it. It's, but there are other forces out there, uh, not the uh, forces of flesh and blood, but the, the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms that are in war against God. And so on the one hand, uh, you got Satan working through people like Balaam and putting stumbling blocks in our way. So God's not the one putting the stumbling blocks there, but God is the one who gives us what we need to endure and to escape from temptation. I believe that's a promise given to us in 1 Corinthians, right? Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Um, we do need to uh, press forward. Yes. And I guess this will be our tough text for today. Tough text. Uh, verse 4 and this discussion about angels and um, when they sin, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Um, man, there's a lot of questions that just kind of jump off the page there. Who are these angels? When did they sin? Um, what are they doing in hell already? If the judgment, we're still waiting for the final judgment. Um, Alex, you want to dive in here? Yeah, you know, there's so much here 
that I could talk a really long time on it. So I'm just going to give you some bullet points of what I think this means. And as you said already, there's no consensus on this. But here's where I'm at. I think Peter is drawing from the book of First Enoch, uh, just like Jude is. If you compare Second Peter chapter 2 with the book of Jude, there's a lot of overlap and similarity. And if you uh, remember, Jude quoted from the book of First Enoch. So the story of First Enoch is the expanded version of what exactly happened in Genesis chapter 6. So the bottom line is that there was a story that was widespread, known, at the time of Peter and Jesus and the beginning of the church, that the uh, a certain group of angels came down, rebelling against God, procreated with women, and um, that for their sin for doing this, they were bound and cast into uh, the pit of Sheol. So Sheol was the realm of disembodied spirits, and there, the deepest, darkest dungeon of Sheol was called the pit. And it was as far from the earth, uh, the pit is as far, far from the earth as the earth is from the firmament, the top of the sky. So um, when Jews and Greeks started talking about this stuff, uh, Sheol would be sort of the touch point for Hades uh, or, or Tartarus. Um, and the pit would be uh, kind of the Tartarus equivalent. So Tartarus is in, in Hades. So that whole thing, there's some overlap there between, okay, here's this realm where dead people go. What does it look like under Jewish theology? What does it look like under uh, uh, Greek theology, or theology and philosophy? And there were some touch points, and so I think that that's what Peter's referring to here. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, I'm going to approach it from um, the the Greek side specifically. Um, and there is this uh, rich history concerning the idea of Tartarus. Tartarus, you know, being the, the word there for hell in most translations. And it was, um, <clears throat> reaches way back eight centuries before Christ um, with... Uh, Homer, and then through other Greek philosophers, uh, Aristophanes mentions it, the Roman poet Virgil in the first century BC talks about it, and and he, the idea is, so, is already so developed by the time Virgil comes on the scene, he just takes for granted that people know what Tartarus is, and I think Peter does a similar thing here, although while you, when you put all the, the various texts together, what you find is that Tartarus is this, this underground world, this subterranean world, way down there. Um, if you dropped an anvil from the bottom of Hades, it would fall for nine days before it hit Tartarus. That's kind of the idea. But it was this dark, gloomy, uh, underground, unseen prison of darkness and it was reserved for uh, not just gods, but also by the time Peter comes on the scene, there was an idea that wicked dead people went there as well. And so I don't want to say that, I don't think Peter is necessarily um, agreeing with everything about Tartarus as, uh, as far as the Greek idea is concerned. Sure. But he is essentially saying um, he's hijacking it and uh, re-envisioning it to a degree, for his audience to say, look, just like these angels, whoever they are and whenever they sin, they did, 
Um, and I'm, I have my own particular idea about that, which I'll speak to in a moment. In the same way, these false teachers, this is where they're going. This is their condemnation. This is their destruction. It's not asleep. It's from long ago. It's not idle. Um, and just like, and, and I, this is the first in a list of a number of, of examples that Peter will give to speak to the righteous judgment of God. Um, just briefly, who are these angels? When did they sin? My particular view is these are angels that engaged in the rebellion um, that is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture that Satan led in his pride. And uh, as a result, some of them were left to chains of gloomy darkness. Um, others, I am persuaded, they became the demons that uh, were around in the first century and I think are still around causing trouble, though not in the same way they did in the first century. All right. Yeah, that seems to be the two uh, major trajectories people go with this is uh, this is either uh, drawing from First Enoch, and we're talking about an expanded version of Genesis 6, or we're talking about some sort of uh, divine rebellion with Satan that people usually put before creation, and uh, they'll touch, tie that back into uh, the, uh, I think it's Revelation uh, 13, right, or 12, Revelation 12, um, with Satan taking a third of the stars, a third of the angels with him. Is that, where, is that what you were mentioning, Nick? That's That's one of them. I think there's Another one, I can't think of it right now, but um, yeah, there there was this um, rebellion when the morning star fell and he took he took others with him. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. But at any rate, that's that's a very brief history <laughs> concerning uh, Tartarus and these angels. But like I said, this is the first of several examples that are given here. Um, verse 5, he talks about Noah, uh, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Um, that, by the way, um, there's another internal clue as to the fact that the Apostle Peter did write this as well as First Peter, because he mentions Noah in both First Peter and Second Peter, but... Um, how was Noah a preacher of righteousness, Alex? When, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, that's a good question, Nick. You know, some people say um, this is the uh, preaching that occurs through his righteous living. So he lived a righteous life. God saw that he stood out, and his example was in and, its, in and of itself uh, a, a living sermon, if you will. Uh, I'm not so sure if that's what Peter has in mind, it's possible. Um, it's not exclusive to other uh, uh, ideas either. Well, another idea is that Noah was trying to warn people, telling that of the of the coming flood. You know, God's going to wipe the earth clean. Um, even in that theory, though, I'm not quite sure because when God commissions him uh, back in Genesis six, um, what you get is oh, and there's another. I guess that's another touch point. Uh, First Enoch is an expansion of Genesis 6, and then Peter follows it up with Noah, which is also Genesis 6. So there might be a connection there, but uh, when God commissions Noah in Genesis 6, he says, I'm going to save you and your wife and your your three sons and their wives. And so God said who he's going to save. Um, so did Noah preach on anyway, knowing that uh, even though they're not going to be saved, he's going to preach to them uh, regardless? Or uh, 
what I think is that before God commissioned him, he was a preacher of righteousness. Before God said, I'm going to save you and your family, so make the bow, he, Noah, I think, was already preaching what was right, telling people um, how to be faithful to Yahweh. And so I guess that's my particular take on Noah being a preacher of righteousness is we're talking about his pre-Ark commission. What do you think, Nick? No, that makes sense. Um, he's part of that uh, uh, lineage that's listed in chapter 5, and um, there's a... Uh, I think that's a, 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 a godly lineage, and I think there's a distinction that's made there between um, the the godly lineage of Seth versus everybody else, I guess, because by the time you get to Noah, um, he's pretty well it. Uh, everybody in the world, that's why it's called, um, Peter calls it here, the world of the ungodly. Every thought they had was continually evil, and... Um, just by way of uh, extension, I think that's another clue as to when everything's going to be wrapped up for us and for this world is when you get to a point where the thoughts of men are continually evil, that's kind of when God has had enough and uh, wrap, will wrap things up finally. Um Sure. Noah's just, uh, he's the second. There's the third here about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Um, Alex, talk to us a bit about Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. So it says that Sodom and Gomorrah, they were an example. And so if they're an example, um, it made me wonder, did God destroy cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, after Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. Um, and so that's that's a, a tough one to answer for sure with like complete absolute um, clarity. But what came to mind was uh, the destruction of Pompeii. And uh, Pompeii was destroyed by a volcano. It was buried under uh, like 10 feet of ash um, in AD 79. Now, uh, some people escaped Pompeii, and when they went back to look for their stuff, because uh, lots of people went back, they were looting what they could find under the ash. Well, archaeologists have um, excavated Pompeii, and they found that in one of the houses, there was writing on the wall. And what they found written was the words Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, wow. So somebody came back to that destroyed city and had the interpretation that this was God's judgment and that it was uh, a modern, uh, in their time, a modern uh, day version of Sodom and Gomorrah. So people have thought this over the centuries is all I'm saying. This, this comes to people's mind and I think it comes to our mind today when we see uh, what we would call natural disasters. Well, um, we don't have absolute clarity on this, but I know people wonder, is this just something that happens because of um, the forces of nature, which is uh, a personification, if you will, Mother Nature's personification. But uh, Mother Nature's not real, right? God's the one who's the creator and ruler right. of creation. So people wonder, hey, when this city gets completely taken out because of an earthquake, is this God's judgment upon them? 
So we don't know with absolute clarity, but I think it's worth asking because uh, what that means for the Christian is, hey, does that mean we just stand back and condemn them? They're just like, well, no, but it does mean that um, if you're going to go help them with one hand, you should have the gospel in the other hand because life-threatening events, traumatic events, events that bring you face-to-face with death and your mortality, those are the kind of windows that soften people's heart to repentance. Those are the kind of windows that give people pause just long enough to hear what really might be out there concerning God and Jesus and his word. So I don't know. What do you think, Nick? No, that's a... um, You mentioned the the natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. Um, Yeah, there's usually a lot of speculation about that. Uh, um, Was it Jerry Falwell who uh, pronounced the earthquake in Haiti as the judgment of God upon that godless nation? Um, I'm with you. I think we need to be very careful um, about what we say about natural disasters being the judgment of God in time. It could be, but without a firm, thus saith the Lord, um, which that's the distinction here between what we read in Scripture and what happens today, um, is that was a definite thus saith the Lord himself showed up for Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, And you have other instances where God brings judgment upon nations through natural disasters, and that would include famine and pestilence, uh, plague of locusts, stuff like that. But uh, today, we can look back and see from the sacred history and the historical record how God has dealt with nations in the past and and maybe carry some principles across the bridge. But again, it's just so... Um, it, it's it's speculative work at best, It's and it's difficult to make a firm, thus saith the Lord, regarding that natural disaster that took place in this particular area. Um, it could be the judgment of God, it just it could be an earthquake and uh, the, the consequence of living in a fallen world. Um, well, the, uh, the last one, I think, yeah, um, the last example that Peter uses here in chapter 2 is righteous lot. And interesting that um, uh, Peter would call him righteous, because he, um, yeah, there's a lot of sketchy stuff there regarding Lot after he escaped Sodom and Gomorrah with his daughters. Alex, um, what do you think? What's going on here with calling Lot righteous? Uh, to me, this is the hardest question of the day. Maybe this should be the tough text. <laughs> tough text. <laughs> so uh, I, I looked into this, and it's always bothered me. The The most disturbing part to me is when Lot offers up his own daughters to the crowd of, uh, to the mob of rapists uh, in order to persuade them to not uh, harm his guests, these two angelic figures who come to him. So... Um, I have I make no excuses for Lot, uh, but people have throughout the centuries. You have uh, you have different uh, midrash and and targums about Lot that go both ways. Some that condemn him and um, are, are pretty harsh against him, and then some that uh, completely go the opposite direction. They they uplift him, and they specifically say that Lot was saved because of this. Uh, midrash that they had uh, this tradition about how when Abraham's wife Sarah was captured by Pharaoh that 
uh, Lot was with them, and Lot didn't. Uh, Lot went along with the the deception, right? He didn't uh, rat Abraham out, and so this somehow made him righteous and and needed. Like basically, they say God owed him one for that. Um, but that's all Jewish tradition. There's Muslim tradition too, where Muslims uh, they really lift up Lot and they um, they change the story quite a bit from the Genesis account to basically show that um, Lot did not offer up his daughters. In the Muslim tradition, they believe Lot was just saying that uh, they should pursue daughters of the city, as in like go find a wife, go find, go get married, go satisfy your your cravings in a in a god authorized way but that i mean that really really changes the the account of what you have in genesis so how is lot righteous well peter says it's because his soul was tormented by all of the uh, ungodliness that he saw around him um as far as lot offering his daughters i think it was was uh terrible it was wrong he shouldn't have done that and i guess it just shows you that uh, you don't have to be perfect to be righteous and you don't have to um, have a record that's completely clean from any moment of stupidity or weakness or frailty because of fearing what man can do to you. So I would say, yeah, Lot's uh, account there in Sodom and Gomorrah looks pretty weak, doesn't look righteous, and yet uh, the New Testament calls us vessels of weakness and says that through faith we are righteous in Christ Jesus. So I guess there's a lesson there for us. It's a, it's a tough one, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Especially as, as modern readers from the safety of our offices or homes or uh, wherever we are, when we read <clears throat> uh, the story of Lot in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah, and and I hear what you're saying about the the moment of weakness. I think that's um, I think that's fair. I mean, he's in a life or death situation there, and um, I don't know when the last time you were in one of those situations, Alex. But I can't right. remember the last time I was. So um, I don't know <clears throat> what what would go through my mind or what what I would do or say. And, we always Maybe want that's to think where Lot is. Yeah, we always want to think we're going to be the hero, right? We're right, going to be the right. and, protagonist and, who uh, steps up and does the right thing. But uh, what what we often, uh, if we're honest, we often find that we're the, we're the coward. So uh, I think there's a little bit of cowardly Lot within all of us. Yeah, and what's interesting is what you mentioned is that ancient readers kind of looked at what Lot did as a courageous act. Um, and I guess if I were to be an apologist, an apologist for Lot in this particular scenario, it would be to say that um, when he offers his daughters to the Sodomites, he is essentially he's doing it in outrage, and it's it's intended as uh, a condemnation, an act of condemnation to the people there, saying, "You're about to do this great wicked deed, just." take my daughters and do, and just, it was kind of an outrage thing. I don't know, that that may be reading into it. But again, if I were to be the apologist for Lot, that's maybe where I would land. But again, what Peter says is he was different. Lot was different than the people that he lived around day after day because his righteous soul was tormented over what he saw and heard. So we got to stick with Peter and, 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 uh, and really the Holy Spirit wisdom behind this who 
who who who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit within the person, and so the Holy Spirit would have known what was going on in Lot, not only during his time in Sodom, but also um, uh, his his time after. So. Well, all of these examples lead to verses 9 and 10, and this is kind of the, uh, the culmination of the argument here. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials <clears throat> and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and, uh, and who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Uh, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Um, and I think, Alex, yours may say angelic majesties, is that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so um, who are these angelic majesties? Right, well, again, I could talk all day about this, but I'll just give you my my bullet point sort of bottom line thing. Um, these angelic majesties... Uh, are going to be beings that are like angels, but not exactly like angels. And what I mean by that is the next verse, verse 11, says angels who are greater in might and power. I think that's in reference to to humans, to the false teachers. Um, even the angels don't bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So if you bring that back to the book of Jude, Jude gets more specific. He says even the archangel Michael doesn't bring a blaspheming judgment against Satan. So Satan, I think, would be an example of an angelic majesty, meaning that he's not the only angelic majesty. So there are these uh, supernatural beings. Um, we just always call them all angels, but I, I think that uh, based off of probably uh, some information that we just don't have, um, I think you can you can guess that there are different types of angels and different rankings and authorities uh, of angels. And you get a little bit of flavoring when uh, we see in Colossians talking about the different uh, invisible things that Jesus Christ created, that Jesus uh, is the creator of and ruler of the thrones, the dominions, the powers, the authorities. Anyway, I think that these majest these angelic majesties, I think that these are supernatural beings with authority. Uh, they're probably the beings who were uh, ruling over the nations that were given to them. Um, this is, uh, I'm drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, where God says he gave uh, the other nations over to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavenly host. That cosmic language is language associated with divine supernatural beings. But they're not God. They're not Yahweh. They're not the creators. They are created beings whom Yahweh has allotted to the other nations. And so I think that's what the angelic majesties are referring to. These are uh, supernatural beings, and these are uh, these are bad guys, I think. <laughs> so these, <laughs> these are guys who are uh, not looking out for our best interest. Um, they are in rebellion against God, and they are actually going to eventually be judged for their actions, uh, just like the angels of chapter or oh, verse four that god uh chained up and, and threw into spirit prison so that's that's what i think what do you think no I, yeah that's um i think that's um a fair assessment um the glorious ones or the celestial beings or the angelic majesties um <clears throat> 
most uh, interpreters see this see these guys as as uh, the bad guys, um, fallen angels, and and so it's interesting that that they blaspheme the bad guys, right? Right, right. But um, what can we expect from these irrational animals, right? Um, but uh, just and and just to carry something across the bridge today, I don't know that there are. Um, how prevalent this practice is of, of blaspheming um, supernatural beings. But if we just take blaspheme as speaking against, uh, I think there's um, there are many today in the world who mock kind of the supernatural realm and, and um, either downplay it or minimize it or eliminate it altogether. And they deny the reality of the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, which would include not just angels, but also God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, um, heaven, hell, and all that stuff. There, there seems to be a rise in the number of people who do not believe in the unseen spiritual realm. And so to tie this to what Peter is saying here, look, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Those who believe in the spiritual realm, the angels, and and both good and bad, um, God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, all of it, um, God is able to rescue us from our trials. I think that's a, a powerful principle for today. That we we are not the we are not to be taken as fools in this because we're believing in a fantasy realm or anything like that. It's the spiritual realm is just as real as the physical realm. We may not be able to see it, but it's it still exerts a powerful influence in uh, in our lives, and and so um, we shouldn't become arrogant and prideful because we believe that. But we should, with humility. Uh, understand the, the Lord is able to to rescue us out of the the present trials of, of those who would seek to uh, dismiss and eliminate the the spiritual realm yeah I think you're right you know the Bible says to resist the devil another place says to flee from the devil but no place says blaspheme the devil right right so I know you're excited about verse 12 I'm um, very excited but but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Wow. Uh, double destruction. Um, <laughs> what, uh, Alex, talk to us about what's going on here with these animals and what you found. Well, Nick, I think that verse 12 of chapter 2 is the antithesis of verse 4 of chapter 1. So if we go back to chapter 1, verse 4, it says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So in chapter 1, I mentioned how I think Peter's point is that you need the inward transformation of Christ-like character in order to arrive at the completed uh, process of receiving a Christ-like body, a resurrection body uh, that is uh, that is divine. It's it's an angel-like body. So, chapter two, I think, shows that the inward character and intention of these false teachers uh, is not going unnoticed, and instead of them receiving um, a a uh, godly body, a resurrected body like like the divine nature, uh, they are actually going to be 
uh, destroyed and waste away and corrupted. And so here's some touch points from the original language. So in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that phrase, you may become, is ginomai, uh, and it means to be born. Well, go back to chapter 2, verse 12, it says, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. The word born there is uh, genoa. So it's the same lemma that's being used there, this idea of being born. And uh, another touch point is in verse 12, it says born as creatures of instinct. That phrase is actually just one word in the Greek, and it's uh, fusikos, Um we get our word physical from it, fusikos. And chapter 1, verse 4, that phrase, partakers of the divine nature, nature there is the word fusis. So it's a, the same lemma base that's being used. So you have this idea in both verses of being born, this idea of both verses talking about something about your physical nature. And the word that's used there, uh, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, the word killed is the Greek word phthora, which uh, has a very simple definition. It means to uh, break down in organic matter. So we're talking about physical stuff uh, being destroyed, being wasted away, being corrupted and ruined. You can imagine uh, something decomposing. That's what this word brings with it. And it's used three times in this one verse, captured and killed, Phthora is killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will end the destruction. Destruction there is Phthora, of those creatures also be destroyed, which is Phthora. And then it's used one more time in verse 19, where it says, These false teachers, they promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. That's Phthora. And so they are decomposing. So as, as, as our inward man is being built up and transformed into the glory of Christ Jesus in order to receive a glorious resurrected body, uh, these guys, their, their inward man is decomposing like rotting flesh. And when their bodies are done and buried in the ground or thrown in a tomb, whatever, they are not going to receive a body like ours. They are going to receive a eternal decom decomposition. And so um, I think that this actually brings in ideas from the majestic angelic majesties. So when it says creatures of instinct, the word creatures uh, makes us think of animals. But I don't think Peter's talking about animals. Uh, he says, like unreasoning animals, right? So unreasoning means alagos, means um, against the word, against reason, without ration, uh, rationale. Animals there is uh, zoan, and it just means a living being. So a human can be in a zoan. An animal that we would call an animal, like a monkey, can be a zoan. Also, an angel can be a zoan because they are a created living being. So I think that this is a verse talking about the ultimate destruction, um, decomposition of rebellious angelic majesties, 
and that these false teachers um, are going to be destroyed along with them. And so this kind of reminds me a little bit, I don't know if it's the exact same, but it reminds me a little bit of Revelation where it talks about people being thrown into hell with Satan and his angels <laughs> uh, into the lake of fire, right? Uh, sorry, I, I said hell, I meant the lake of fire. But um, anyways, bottom line is I think verse 12 is the antithesis of chapter 1 verse 4 that um, if you, hey, you read the English Standard Version, right? Yeah. Uh, can you turn to Psalm 82 for me? Sure can. Uh, Psalm 82 is pretty short. What's that say, Nick? Yeah, Psalm 82, which which verse? Uh, just read the whole thing. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Okay, so angelic majesties are uh, given authority over the nations, but God is going to be the one who ultimately inherits the nations. And those angelic majesties are bad guys, um, and they are going to be judged by God. And God's judgment is, since you haven't carried out justice, you're going to die like a man. Even though you're sons of God, even though you're gods, you're going to die like a man. So you just have to remember that when, when it says God's there, uh, just think angels. Just think fallen angels. It, we're not talking about multiple uh, Yahwehs. It's just one Yahweh. It's just one Jesus. Uh, but uh, it's just one creator. But we're talking about beings that uh, are part of God's divine counsel that God is going to judge ultimately by destroying them, by phthora, by their breakdown in their uh, organic matter. And anybody who wants to worship them and live like they do and to um, do the kinds of things that they do, which is what we're going to see in Second Peter 2, verses 13 through 15, uh, 15 through 16. If you're going to do these kinds of things, you're going to be destroyed with them, which I think is a powerful argument for putting annihilation uh, back on the table. So that's the best I could summarize it, Nick. I don't know what your thoughts are. You go ahead and you can disagree with me if you want. That's, that's totally fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's... Um, well, what I, what I want uh, to... I want to jump ahead and, and talk about... Since you talked a lot about um, destruction there um, and, and talk about... Verse 21 says, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Talking about those who um, came to knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ but then turned back, got entangled again in the stuff from the world and the, and the sensuality and sexuality of these false teachers. Um, he says in verse 20, the last state has become worse than the first. Um, are there degrees of punishment? Is, is, uh, are there varying shades of punishment where it's worse for someone uh, 
uh, worse for that person than for someone else. What do you think, Nick? Woe to the unrepentant cities, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, he says about um, Chorazin and Bethsaida that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for them. Jesus also talks about in John, I think it's chapter 18, when he's standing before Pilate, that um, there are those who are guilty of a greater sin. Yeah, the the deeper I go into this rabbit hole, the more I see there, there probably is. Um, uh, he, the, there's a parable he tells about a servant who knew the master's will but didn't do it. He'll be beaten with many stripes versus the servant who didn't know the master's will, he'll be beaten with few stripes. It just right. seems like, again and again, you run across this idea of, yeah, there are differing punishments that are doled out when it's all said and done. Um, and and so when it comes to destruction, um, if, if, it's the, if it's the same word, and I'm remembering the study I've done on it, that's like the... Uh, the and I think you mentioned the decomposition aspect of it, but it's like a ship that was sank and it just sits at the bottom of the ocean and just deteriorates and and it, it's it's just this ongoing process of deterioration. Right. I don't know that there was this idea of eventually the deterioration process stops once all the pieces and particles are gone. I just think it was a constant state of destruction that was kind of unending. That's where I fall with that. Sure, so, sure. Um, yeah, so it would have been better for them to have never known the way. That sounds like it's going to be worse for someone. And in this case, this is the text we use for, for people who become Christians and then go back to the world, go back to a former lifestyle. You, Our God is a consuming fire, and we do not want to stand before him one day having trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus. That is a very grievous thing uh, to God. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. So, right. yeah, it it's going to be worse if they know the way of righteousness and abandon that path. And I guess uh, just as a, as a disclaimer for my part anyway, um, this isn't aimed as a weapon towards people who have had bad church experiences, for people who are no longer uh, a part of any kind of uh, fellowship or congregation because something, uh, they've had they've had bad experiences, right? So uh, that, that spectrum can be quite wide as to what exactly happens to people that leaves them bitter and angry at the church and at God. Um, but this is geared towards the false teachers. This is geared towards people who are like, you know, um, Jesus is spiritual, but it's baby stuff. I'm going to go on to the real stuff, which means I can do whatever I want in this flesh, and uh, I can spiritualize my sin away, and I can indulge and uh, immerse myself in all kinds of sexual sin and greed and pride and corruption and deceiving. And so we're talking about people who are uh, really full-blown with great intentionality, um, with this high-handed kind of sin thing, like leaving Christ, leaving the church, forsaking the right way, denying the master. Um, to me, um, there are elements of subtlety and deception, but there are also some pretty blatant elements as well. But I, Yeah, I, and that's that's the freedom that they promise in verse 19, isn't it? I think so. Where, um, 
yeah, it's and again, I think this idea shows up a lot in in America of hey man, it's free country, right? And and it's kind of a we think of freedom as freedom to do whatever we want, and maybe that's what these guys were promising was yeah, you'll be free to do whatever you want. Yeah, and, get out of my bedroom. It's my business. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And it's not freedom to do whatever you want. It's the freedom to be all that God would have you to be. Um, in, in in this case, uh, they, right. they promised them freedom. Look, you, he says here, uh, they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever c- overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so if you refuse to follow God, you follow after your own sinful desires, That's you, you're, you're enslaved to that. You're enslaved to the, the passions and the desires of your own body. Whereas what the call of the gospel is, is to submit our lives to Christ and to be free from slavery to sin and become slaves of righteousness. And so right. <clears throat> that's the freedom there. And I think, Nick, uh, I, I'm on the same page with you as degrees of punishment. I mean, this idea uh, continues to flesh itself out as we go through these letters. I think that there are degrees of punishment, uh, the the ultimate degree being this uh, warning of uh, destruction, pethora, uh the decomposition of organic matter. I mean, as you said, Nick, uh, we don't know if, if does this decomposition take place forever and ever. If we're talking about people uh, being thrown into into hell or to the lake of fire or whatever, whatever image you want to bring forth, does that something is that a state of decomposition that they stay in forever and ever, or does it eventually come to an end? And uh, and if it does, how long does it take? And these are just questions we don't know, and so I haven't really come to a conclusion on that myself. But I have, I have come to the conclusion that I do think there are degrees of punishment going on. Otherwise, the verses don't make as much sense; they're harder to explain. Well, um, we're kind of going to wrap this up here. Uh, final thoughts, uh, Alex. Uh, final thoughts for me are again, it's just the uh, really the focus of the resurrection and how. Uh, you're going to grow older. Your body's going to wear out. It's going to be painful. It's going to be uncomfortable. But inwardly is where our focus needs to be, that we are um, becoming like Christ in our character, in our thoughts, in our actions, that we're being his hands and feet so that we can arrive at the goal of being with God. But that also requires uh, to have an a-, a body like the angels. And so if you want to be with God the way the angels are, you're going to need a body like they have. One has been promised to us. We will receive it. But it's not just working on ourselves. It's also watching out for traps and stumbling blocks and temptations because there are forces against us um, that are present in the world. And so that's what chapter 2 is about. We need to remember what their ultimate end is and that we don't get sucked down with them. Don't let them drag us down with them to, to Tartarus. That's not where you want to end up. For me, it's uh, there will be false teachers among you. It's that was true then, and it's not going away. It that seems to be the the trajectory of sacred history. Is there were false prophets in the past? There will be false teachers among you, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God can rescue us, but it requires that we remain true to Him, true to His Word, uh, that we we don't get entangled and become overcome by 
the the junk that the false teachers bring to the table. And so that requires discernment on our part to be able to identify the counterfeit. Um, I like the illustration that's sometimes brought up about um, folks that deal with uh, counterfeit money and the way they're able to uh, prepare themselves to identify counterfeit money is by studying the true thing. And you're able to immediately identify the false thing because you're so familiar with the true thing. And Peter, he just, he just wrapped up chapter 1 saying, God spoke by people carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have his word. We can trust his word, but we need to be people who are devoted to him and to his word if God would rescue us. We need, if we would discern the false from the true, we need to spend our time focused on the true, and then when error rears its ugly head, we'll be able to identify it immediately. So that's my thought for this. Well, Nick, I I think that's a good thought to end on, and I'll just remind our audience to uh, be sure to listen to us on the website. It's swordplay.cast.rocks, and also search Swordplay on iTunes or on Google Play. Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Rate the podcast if you like it. Hopefully we can get a good rating. Write a review if you feel like it. Also, if you have questions, you can email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'll take your questions, we'll answer them on the air, and uh, you can ask anything about what we've covered or even something that we haven't covered. And uh, be sure to share with us. If you like the podcast, go ahead and repost links to the website or the podcast on Facebook or Twitter or social media and get the word out so that this can be used as a tool to uh, build up and encourage and edify people as we all continue to study the word and strive to be like Christ. Uh, Nick, am I forgetting anything? You covered everything. All right, well, thanks for joining us on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.